Welcome to Zero Ambitions, the podcast that has high ambitions about pushing for zero emissions in the built environment. My name is Jeff Colley, the other guy is Duncan Smith, and in spite of the fact that neither of us has the faintest idea of what we're doing, we have enough hubris to record this podcast and expect people to spend their precious time listening to it, even if the truth may be more like two desperate men mumbling self-righteously into an abandoned cave. On this episode, the unfortunate creature who wandered into our cave is Dr. Peter Rickby, one of the leading brains in low-energy building and retrofit. Tragically for me, but miraculously for anyone out there who may be listening to this, I had to cry off from speaking to Peter, so you'll have the benefit of hearing much more of him, broken up by some no-doubt indecipherable gurgling from our Glaswegian friend. But before I headed off, I took a moment to G up Duncan for his big interview, and here's how that went. Uh, so where do we go? Uh, I mean, um, so you're you're speaking to Peter in a while. Yeah. I obviously can't. I'm washing my hair, so I can't make that. <laughs> so we're speaking to Peter um, later on today, and I think that'll be really good because I think the conversation we had with Scott and Jenna was a was a strategic conversation about where do we go with um, the built environment and and um, and climate change and a, and a real sort of high level discussion. But Peter will bring, uh, I think, uh, an experience to the table which is which is more about the retrofit challenge in, in the UK and and some of the things that we have to do around decarbonisation. But I think where he'll bring um, uh, most benefits to people listening will be around past twenty thirty five. And I I don't know about you. Um, in the UK, a past 2035 came into being last July, I think last July. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a lot of, um, would I go far seeing confusion? There's a lot of um, unknowns to past. I think people think it's a bit of a dark art. So, what, what we're really trying to bring out from Peter, who's in depth knowledge, he was one of the authors of PAS and and, and, and works um, works in a retrofit environment is, you know, what, what really is PAS, what, what's it intended to do, uh, and trying to look at some of the benefits of it, I think, because far too often I think it is sort of maligned uh, by people out there delivering things, and I think if they knew a little bit more about it, they might, might not be as critical. Well, this is it. So he's he's the, if PAS is a dark art, then he's the kind of evil, <laughs> you know, necromancer sort of wizard who's kind of... Um, Trying to trying to kind of pull the strings and and yeah. uh, destroy the construction industry and so yeah. you know make it make make the humble yeah. fish bash bash contractor's life a misery you know exactly and I think um, and that's the thing with Peter you know he obviously he, on the surface of it he looks a really nice guy but clearly uh, he has uh, uh, malign in, in, intentions <laughs> uh, no I think it'll be I think it'll be really good and um, I think that's hopefully what this space and and I think that's what you intended to be as well. This space is about um, bringing together people to disseminate information either around um, uh, sustainability, the built environment and, and best practice. And and I think, and, and obviously you write a, a magazine which is all about the detail, but I think what we, what we, what we find, I find anyway, is, is that the mainstream media, I hate using that term because I sound like Trump, <laughs> don't I? The mainstream media. So, but you, but, you know, your traditional uh, media channels, if, if they focus on a retrofit project, if they focus on a renewables project, there isn't the in-depth analysis and you tend to find, I, I feel anyway, and this is through talking to people who've been interviewed, 
uh, over the last six months or so that there's the inevitable questions by you know the, the larger corporations how much does this cost will it be difficult that, and, and trying to paint the picture in that negative way about you know consumers should be afraid because they're going to have to spend more money and I think there's something I think that's quite a simplistic view um, and I think people want to hear a little bit more in depth about what we need what, to do. What do you expect from the fake news media? <laughs> terms, yeah, well, I don't think either of us should be advocating anyone marches on Glasgow City Council, Jeff. I think we just want to put that out there. Um, we we abhor any uh, any insurrection or violence towards any council leaders. Um, so just so we know, uh, we'll have that check with the legal team. Um, but... <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but I don't think people be... get that excited about this stuff. Unfortunately, no, no. you know, it's I remind reminded of a, yeah. a um a former uh government advisor uh in the UK who the the, the one who was keen on uh on mm. uh, taking uh, uh what was it uh car journeys to chest his oh. eyesight out um, <laughs> um who uh, yeah. who uh, supposedly at the time when the when the retrofit um grants were being were, were being uh, mooted as an idea first of all was very dismissive of the concept because insulation is boring if i recall correctly yeah was he not a big advocate hydrogen as well i'm sure he was on the hydrogen bandwagon okay Which, uh, yeah. from, from conversations i've had i think he was a big advocate of of um yeah of of non-insulation or non-fabric type measures and, and hopefully moving the gas over to hydrogen which um well, that's it. It's that I I can't resist the the hot air kind of pond there. It's ridiculous. I know, lame, lame. But um, look, uh, it's that this is a fundamental problem um, mm. for the for the whole retrofit space in terms of of you know um, yeah. ensuring that you have a I guess a political class that's going to take the issue seriously, understand that it's unavoidable, that yeah. it has to be tackled, and actually that yes. The detail of it is really quite technical, and you can't just, um, uh, yeah. you know, chuck some money at it uh, with a short-term horizon and expect magically everything to work. Um, mm. you, you know, there's a lot of detailed and yes, anarchy kind of work that needs to be done to mm -hmm. uh, to to ensure that you um, that, you, that you make a success of this thing. Otherwise, uh, it's just it, you know, it's just po empty posturing and a waste of money. Yeah, to totally. And and but I would also turn it around and say you're absolutely right. There is a lot of technical stuff. Um, there's a lot of things that can go wrong. And a part of the question, or the, one of the questions, I'd like to ask Peter is, you know, does he feel that the market, the market being the the, the contractors that are delivering retrofit works at scale, either to authorities or the individual, or have they got the solutions in place to do that? I think there's a question mark over that. But I would I would argue that. Whilst yes, things will be difficult and in some cases expensive, but there's a huge opportunity, and I, I think that's what's overlooked um, a, a lot of the time. Um, there's an opportunity, and in fact, we picked this up partly with Scott and Jenna, and we've—I'm um, sure you and I have bounced back ideas on a diagram we had about um, whole house retrofit or holistic retrofit, economic opportunities, obviously climate, environmental opportunities, health opportunities. You know, there's a range of opportunities out there that I think we need to focus on rather than just the this is going to cost, this is going to be uncomfortable. Well, this is the, there's the amenity value too. I mean, mm. you know, I was watching something on the telly the other day, um, some uh, American, uh, one of these fancy new American, you know, uh, shows, mm. that's, uh, the, the, the HBO style uh, stuff that's all the rage now that people binge watch. And um, I saw one of the stars of standing in a in a what looked like a uncomfortable, you know, nice looking but uncomfortable, uh, uh, 
you know, high-end house in a in a yeah. very snowy setting, and you think, well, you know, um, if if we can't get to a situation where this becomes aspirational for, uh, and I hate yeah. that word, but uh, for uh, for kind of the high net worth individuals, hate that word as well. Yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> you know, um, then uh, then we're kind of we're really missing a trick here. I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, uh, who doesn't want to be comfortable? Why isn't yeah. that uh, a thing? Um, yeah. Who enjoys the feeling of kind of cursing when you get out of bed in the morning, you know, in the, on, yeah. because of the cold, you know, um, yeah. or being too hot in the summer or whatever, you know, it's these concepts. Yeah. Uh, it's just it's mind numbing that that they're not bedded in as things that that anyone yeah. would want. Um, but there yeah. you go, you know. And, and, and I think you you picked up on that in an interview with Scott, where I think I think you phrased it quite quite well, where. We're constantly told of the things we can't have in terms of climate change or the, the I think you said the flights that we can't take and the food that we have not to eat, which invariably we all have to, to and we, we, we do have to do. But I think it's selling the benefits of um, just what you're talking about, an aspirational standard that, yeah, may cost more money, but is, but is, but is life-changing in terms of what it can do. And I, I would argue that... Um, in a social housing context, uh, that's particularly relevant. You know, around things like good, good internal environments, uh, warm uh, in, uh, internal environments, and, and, and good quality air and, yeah. and air quality. I think that's really fundamental uh, and quite often, you know, overlooked. Well, this is it. Yeah, and I, I you know, uh, I know that we're starting to see signs in in Ireland and in fairness, there's evidence of this in the UK of um, whatever people individually may think, there is evidence that um, that uh, property valuation, for instance, is mm -hmm. linked to uh, increasingly becoming linked to the energy rating of the building. You know, of course, there's a whole other question about how much value you place in the the energy performance certs in the UK or the building energy ratings in Ireland in terms yeah. of their accuracy. But it's kind of telling us more about consumer uh, interest rather than the actual quality of the buildings, you know, um, and and that they're where people are afforded the opportunity to to kind of vote with their feet and to and to um, uh, to, to buy a a more sustainable option, a more energy efficient option. It's increasingly mm -hmm. apparent that that, uh, that that there's a connection and there's an interest in doing so, you know. So I think that's, that's very heartening, you know. Yeah, that is heartening. That's really interesting as well. And I wonder if that's I wonder if that's um, the same in Scotland. I suspect I suspect we're all moving in the same pathway. But that, that's there was a that's study a few years ago. Yeah, a deck uh, did a study mm. a good few years ago um, in the of um, energy performance certs um, and and uh, actual house. Uh, prices achieved sales sales prices um, mm -hmm. uh, rather than asking prices, which a couple of similar Irish studies have shown. Um, mm -hmm. And the UK study showed that, with the exception of London, um, where uh, the market's just bananas and people are paying whatever yeah. they can for whatever piece of crap they can get their hands on, basically, you know, um, yeah. uh, everywhere else in the country, there was a clear link between the energy performance score um, mm. and um, and the sales price achieved. Um, so it's you speak to an individual auctioneer, for instance, yeah. and they'll say there's no connection. You know, yeah. of course, it's not the only factor. You know, um, yeah. but you need yeah. big, big studies um, to be able to un unpick. Um, yeah. uh, you know, to to what extent these factors are there. Uh, it's one of the reasons why it's really important that we actually look at data rather than just uh, you yeah. know, uh, I don't know, opinion, blind prejudice, and all that kind yeah. of crap. You know. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think that's right. I also think as well um, when you look at energy prices now, the, there's a price price rise in, in the UK here in October when 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 tariffs are lifted, and um, I think when you look at the average bill now, I'm sure I saw something out and I'll reference it. 
uh, as part of the post is, but I, I think we're looking at somewhere between 1,400, £1,700 per annum on, on energy costs. Now, obviously, heating is, is one element of that, but probably the, the largest. But if you look at mapping, and that's an average UK cost yeah. per household. And if you look at uh, mapping that out, Jeff, over, over a 10-year period, potentially somebody could be spending you know, up to £20,000 and some poorly insulated, poorly heated properties. So, you know, I, I think people should start to take into account the energy rating, albeit appreciate there's flaws in that. But, you know, if spending £20,000 on any other product or service over the course of a 10-year period, you you would be looking at that with um, with much more scrutiny. And sometimes I think we just accept, we've accepted prices and we've accepted an energy energy cost. Well, this um, is it, you know, and uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's about recognising that if you invest in it now too, um, mm. that, that the asset, sorry, did you hear a, 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 a pop coming through there? There was no, a, no, no, okay, no, strange. no, it's strange. I shouldn't have said anything. Um, um, it's champagne, a, it's a, champagne at this time, <laughs> No, it's just an email or something popping through on my computer. Ah, okay. Um, so, um, essentially, um, it's, it's about uh, recognizing uh, that uh, mm. a, a decision you can take or not take. Of course, the problem with retrofit is getting people to do anything in the first place, unless they're already yeah. planning to gut out a building, you know. Um, yeah. But um, that, you know, other than the fact that you can avoid bit of misery and discomfort um you know um and help to hopefully protect the health of of your family and all this kind of crack um and other than the fact that the world is on fire if you happen to care about that you know um yeah. there's um there, there's also uh the fact that it's becoming clear that should you ever go should you have any interest in the whether it's in the short or long term in the mm. value of your you know of, of the asset that you own um mm. it's very clear already that there's a connection and that's going to become increasingly clear over time um, there was one. I'll just one little example that we published in the magazine um, a while ago. There was a, a social housing, a sheltered housing scheme in in Wexford called College View. It's twelve units, thirty odd square meter each. They're bed sits basically, or sorry, mm-hmm. studio apartments to give the estate agents uh, uh, spin on it. Um, and um, they um, they were up- upgraded to very high levels of you know insulation, external insulation middling air tightness um, and then uh, mechanical ventilation and heat pumps and so on. It was a, it was a good job um, yeah. and decent windows put in and so on. Um, but there were, there were the air tightness was, I suppose, the big thing that probably let it down a bit. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, the point is that um, they got from up from like F and G ratings and so on our, on our system uh, up mm-hmm. to uh, A2s on our, our system. I think, I think 10 of the 12 were A2s. They got an auctioneer to value them um, mm-hmm. uh, afterwards. Um, and, um, uh, she came to the conclusion that uh, the, the 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 jobs that you, it cost twenty five grand each to to do the retrofits um, in euros. That is obviously, um, and the value, even though the council wasn't planning on selling them, the value had increased um, according to this auctioneer by thirty five thousand each. Wow! Um, so it was just a really interesting example yeah. where um, you know the point is that the, the evaluation is according to this auctioneer who's very respected on yeah. I think Dolores Power is a name local auctioneer who's respected kind of nationally in Ireland and, and um, yeah. uh, we've already reached a point in this instance where she, she was saying that the uh, the increase in value was 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 uh, was significantly greater than the cost of the works in that case so I think that's examples like that are really really interesting and you know it's really? quite rare to see that kind of analysis done yeah that's re- really interesting. Really interesting. 
Well, listen, I know you've got a, a, a busy day. Uh, I thought it'd be worthwhile um, just doing a quick intro before we, we, we chat to Peter. <laughs> yeah. But um, any any questions that you'd like to ask Peter in particular? I, I, well, he, I'd ask him where the where the bodies are buried. He knows all that <laughs> stuff, you know. Um, yeah. So, I mean, yeah. you know, I, I think with PASS, um, it's really important. Most people, um, unless they're intimately involved in this, don't really know what it is, you know. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, just, to, just to explain why it's important and, and why it's important that we have this kind of a uh, methodical uh, strategic approach uh, r- rather than bish bash bash you know yeah um, yeah I, I agree and i think also um what would what would be good to frame just that question is why have why have we why have we gotten here and i think if everything if if the retrofit world was a was a lovely disney movie with singing swallows it, it would be fine but you know we're here for a reason and i think I, you know Personally, I, I think pass is a progressive thing. I think it, it is, like anything, it has its flaws. But I think, is it better than what was before? And I think unquestionably, yes. And that may, may be showing some 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 bias, but we, 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 we use it. So it'd be good to frame why why are we here and how have we got here in terms of the requirement for, it's not a standard, obviously, but it's a, it's a process. Well, this is it. And I think um, what interests me about it is that, you know, in this space, too often the policymakers, um, I think, are a bit shy about taking judgments on um, on what approaches should be taken and shouldn't. Um, you know, um, and of course, that's it's a it's a fraught area uh, yeah. for a bunch of different reasons. Um, and and one of the consider considerations, of course, that really complicates things is the fact that every existing building is different. Um, so mm-hmm. how do you do that? You know, past to me seems like it has some some smart sort of uh, ideas about how to how to navigate you know how to, to map out what what the what the the plan should be for a for a given building depending on its specific needs and i think yeah. that that alone is uh, a really important uh yeah. you know element you know um, yeah I, th- I think that sums it up rather well jeff i think that's ex- exactly my interpretation of what it's what it's there to do and i think that can only be a good thing i think you have to have objectivity and and um and separation between between contractor and design so um i think pass goes some way to to, to meeting that brilliant well, jeff, sure look, yeah the best of luck with peter yeah. give, give him my best um and cool. uh, and, uh and, and try not to you know embarrass yourself no, we'll get the uh, we'll get the biscuits and the tea. <laughs> we'll get the biscuits and the tea out. All the best, Jeff. Take, Take care. care. Good luck, bye. Cheers. Peter, thank you so much for joining us on the pod uh, today. Um, thanks for, for coming along. I think the first question we just want to kick off with is um, COP26 uh, is, is here in Glasgow in November this year. And the built environment and climate change uh, are becoming, or the, 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 the climate change issue in relation to the built environment is becoming more uh, framed in some of the discussions we are having. Could, could you tell us from a UK context what you think the um, the scale of the challenge is, what we have to do in terms of our, our, our domestic homes? Yeah, I mean, I think it's absolutely huge. And we've been nibbling at it for a long time at pretty much all of the 27, 28 million homes in the UK need improvement. It's not just a few of them because we haven't even been building the new ones to a zero carbon kind of standard yet. So there's a huge amount to do. 
Um, if you look at improving that many homes over 30 years to 2050, a bit less now, um, during normal working hours, you have to do about five a minute. So um, that's more than we were building in the 1960s. So it's, it is a huge challenge. Um, and we have to not only improve them in terms of insulation, so we've got to decarbonize the heating and the hot water and the cooking as well. Mm. So um, it, it needs a real focus. And one of the things I have observed so far is that despite the rhetoric coming from government, uh, probably better actually from the Scottish government than from Westminster government, but despite that rhetoric, there isn't really much serious uh, gripping, gripping of what the nature of the problem is. Mm. I think uh, politicians and I think civil servants to a degree have understood the scale of the challenge. I think politicians haven't. And I think they can, uh, they're looking at a, a sort of let's just make a few changes and then it's business as usual model. And that isn't going to cut it. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that that's interesting that that term business as usual, because I think pre pandemic or, or just over the pandemic, we, um, um, and, and, and when the pandemic started, I think the, the, the term, let's not go back to business as usual. Um, and, and I fear, I'm not sure if you do, that I already start to see some of the signs in that back to business as usual in terms of the application of products. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I've been writing in Passive House Plus in my column about it and saying mm -hmm. that I think that the hopes of um, building back better seems to be uh, dis dis diminishing, dissipating all the time. Mm -hmm. And in fact, only only last week, I had a call from someone in Scotland who was saying that um, although the one civil servant in the Scottish government who's been championing past 2035 and part of the process is still there for us, um, I think he, the report I had was that lots of other people were ganging up on him and saying, this is too complicated, this is too expensive, we can't afford to do it, and starting to bring old thinking into it, which doesn't really acknowledge the challenge. So I think there's a political element to this as well as an economic and a physical you know, organizational element. It's, it's, it's almost like a war. Yeah. In fact, I remember not very long ago, a, a, a green politician, the politician who was chair of the Environment Committee of the Westminster Parliament, saying that um, at that time, which was about 10 years ago, we were in a kind of twilight war against climate change. We were sort of marshalling our troops and thinking about the challenges, but we weren't actually really fighting. And my perception at the moment is we're still in the twilight war. We're still talking about it. We're still moving a few things around, but we're not really uh, yeah. rising to the challenge. And I think we need to do that now because time is running out. Yeah, I think it, it, it very much is. Just in terms of, of some of the solutions, uh, when we look at those 20, I think the figure, you can probably correct me if I'm wrong, about 28 million, 28 and a half million homes in, in the UK. And I think we have some of the, I saw a BRE report a few months back uh, showing that we have some of both the oldest and the least efficient homes uh, in, in, in the UK over um, across Europe. How do you see or what would you see the solutions um, developing that we can use um, both in a social and a private setting in, in terms of um, heat networks or heat pumps, uh, retrofit insulation. What, what do you see as being the, some of the, uh, the key areas? Well, I think the first thing to say is that none of the solutions for sort of decarbonizing heat and hot water and cooking work unless we reduce demand mm. because they're, they're looking at whole new technologies, whole new supply systems to a large degree. And if we leave the level of demand at the where it is, we won't be able to, to satisfy it. So insulation, air tightness have to be the first thing that we look at, or at least part of the first thing we look at. Then I think we've got, um, well, there are 
The heat network option, I think, is probably a good one, but it's probably only going to work in urban areas. It's yeah. probably, uh, I mean, the big problem with the heat network, whether it be dis- you know, communal heating for a block or heating and hot water for a whole half a city, is that you've got to have a zero carbon source of heat yeah. to put in. Yeah. And I'm not sure where that would come from. Maybe it's going to be renewables. Maybe it's going to be burning waste. Mm. Uh, maybe it's going to be biofuels. But that's a whole infrastructure that we don't really have. And uh, so I think there's a there's an issue there with uh, that and the, the, the amount of money and time it takes to build a good heat network. And the government's been putting pressure on cities to do that for oh, well over 10 years. And actually, very little progress has been made because there hasn't been enough incentive or support for it. I think the, um, the the most common solution, obviously, the one that's most often mentioned is electrifying mm. heat and hot water and cooking. Um, and that looks just about doable to me with a bit of a challenge involved. Um, I have a colleague at UCL who's done the calcs. And uh, if we were to take all the heat, well, the first thing to say is that a typical dwelling in the UK uses three or four times as much energy in the form of heat as it does in the form of electricity power, mm-hmm. uh, assuming it's not electrically heated at the moment. So if we electrify all the heat, uh, basically take away all the gas and electrify all the heat, and we need to get that electricity um, to the dwellings um, as renewable electricity, as zero carbon electricity, of course, um, we would need something approaching 30 times as much wind power connected to the national electricity grid as we have now. So after years of investment building huge amounts of wind farms, we'd have to go 30 times as many uh, over the next 20 years, which is not really uh, believable, I Mm. think. If, however, we were to use heat pumps um, with a coefficient of power on average of, say, two and a half, then we could take that figure of 30 down to 12. Mm-hmm. And 12 times as much wind power as we currently have on the grid is still challenging, but a little bit more believable. And then if we were to do the retrofit of all the homes and the other buildings, um, so as to reduce demand by maybe 60%, simply by insulating, um, we could take that down to a factor of four. And I think multiplying the amount of offshore wind we've got, as, as an example, um, by a factor of four over the next 20 years is probably perfectly feasible. With the, with the right political will and the right level of investment. Um, but, of course, it's not all offshore wind. It's the equivalent. Um, we've obviously some nuclear in the mix and some onshore wind and some solar PV, but we basically have to get four times as much renewable or low-carbon energy on the grid as we have now. And then that leaves us with um, the problem of getting that electricity, electricity to the homes, and we can talk about that in a moment, I guess. Um, the other thing is, of course, if we're trying to, um, well, we, the, the pressures on the grid are that the, the capacity is mostly on the the house side of the substation, the local side of the substation, yeah. uh, where there is, there, that's a, where the pressure comes. And there isn't enough capacity in that distribution network, those distribution networks at the moment. Mm-hmm. And as um, there is the problem of the demand for electrifying our cars, getting rid of our petrol and diesel cars and using EVs, all of which we will want to charge. So not only do we have a transition to electric heating and hot water, but we have a transition to electric vehicles, which adds more to the necessary capacity of the distribution network. So clearly there is a a real issue around investment in the distribution networks on the customer side of the the substations. 
Which, um, which, and then the, I was just going to say the third thing, the last thing about it is that we're trying to persuade people, or we will be, to give up gas and gas boilers, with which they're familiar, and go for electricity, electrical heating, with which they're not. And actually, we can't, we're not going to achieve that without tariff reform. Yeah. Because right now, all the all the subsidies are on the gas system. All the subsidies are on gas at a national level. And all the all the levies for energy efficiency and so on, the things that pay for eco and stuff like that, are on the electricity supply. Yeah. Because that's the one type of energy that every household's got, electricity. Yeah. So... It's, it's that's the inverse of what we need. Therefore, I think we need to have pretty much thoroughgoing tariff reform, but I don't see very much appetite for it, yeah. you know, displayed by either government or Ofgem, actually. Um, they're much more concerned with keeping the lights on, of course, but, but they do yeah. need to think about how we're going to pay for it. But but even even tariff reform, I mean, I'm, I think, I, think um, I remember looking at a figure and I could, you could correct me if I'm wrong. I th- I think that about twenty, maybe tw- as much as twenty eight percent of 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 the of the gas of the sorry of electricity tariff comes from um, comes from uh, tariffs for eco and things. But that's that's still. I think I did some calculations. That still leaves us a price of around ten p. I think ten eleven pence. Yeah, which is still considerably more. Uh, yes. more, more than gas, um, and I, 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 I totally take your point. Having having come from a Scottish power background um, um, about grid capacity and, and and more renewables, these things also come at a cost. And I, th- I think um, I think when we talk about retrofit, generally the the um, the issue of cost is held up. But I think it's naive to to, to look at uh, how we electrify heat and, and not expect the cost of electricity to, to rise because of the infrastructure that we need. Mm. Um, w- one of the points I just want to go back and, and touch on, Peter, is, is we in our industry, we talk about fabric first and and, and that process. But I, I hear fabric first now being spoken about more and more and more, but I'm not actually sure people know <laughs> exactly um, what, 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 what is meant by fabric first. It seems to be used in a, in a very... Um, in a sort of loose fashion, could 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 you maybe, you know, for people who are listening to this, give us a little bit more in depth about what a fabric first approach would would be? How if we're to reduce that that demand, say by I think you said sixty percent, what what does that entail from a fabric first perspective? Okay, so fabric first is you know a very old strategy. Really, the idea is reduce demand first, which means insulation and air tightness, then satisfy that demand efficiently and now in a low carbon way, and then finally top up with renewables or whatever you might need locally to meet whatever standard you're trying to achieve. And the general view has always been that you have to do fabric first with electrification of heat because heat pumps um, aren't very good at very high heat loss dwellings or in very cold weather. If If we simply took all our current poorly insulated dwellings and stuck heat pumps in instead of gas boilers, the heat pumps wouldn't cope in winter cold snaps. So it's about reducing demand first. And it's always been seen as step by step, reduce demand, make these services efficient, and then apply the renewables or decarbonize. Um, More and more people I'm hearing now are saying, well, actually, we have to do the first two steps simultaneously Mm. because there isn't enough time to Mm. delay in decarbonizing the heat and going for the heat pump. So we have to do that at the same time as we insulate, which is fine. We can't do it before we insulate because then the heat pump will not cope or it will be too big and too expensive yeah. um, for us. 
So that's the general the general approach. And one or two people have been saying we have to merge steps one and two. And I, I have some sympathy with that as yeah. as we see the urgency of the climate crisis yeah. Um, yeah, coming over the horizon at us quite quickly. And I suppose that that leads us on to, to two questions, Peter. If 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 we if we accept that that reduction in demand as well as renewables uh, first, I suppose does does the private sector? Well, two things. Does the private sector have the solutions in place? Is the private sector? When I say the private sector, I mean the contractors, the the people delivering these measures at, at the coal face. Um, are those solutions, and, and I suppose are those skills uh, in, in place um, to do that just now? I think we're working on it. I, I think the capacity of the uh, the professionals in Redfit is being improved every day, uh, mm. but still at a rate that won't get us to the numbers we need for perhaps another 10 years if we keep going. Uh, I think on the delivery side, in the terms of installers and contractors, more and more people are getting trained and becoming focused on Redfit projects. But I think the capacity of the delivery industry is much lower. And of course, we've lost a lot of labor to Europe with people have yeah. gone back. And also, we're competing with the new build sector. And the new build sector are Westminster government's buddies, because uh, you know, Westminster government's committed to building lots and lots of new houses. And um, I actually recently did an exercise where I watched some a ventilation system being retrofitted in a new build. Uh, sorry, in an existing home with people and their things in it, mm-hmm. and also installed the next day, the same system being installed in a new build. And if I was training to be a ventilation installer and I was asked, will you be working in the new build sector or the retrofit? I would choose new build every time mm-hmm. because it's just so much easier, easier to work on a site where things are done in, in the right stages and, and yeah. everything's prepared for you and it's step by step compared yeah. with retrofit where you're tripping over people's, everything property yeah. pets you know um it's a whole different kind of process and skill so we really have to think about how do we persuade everyone yeah. uh, not just to get their homes retrofitted but also to help retrofit them and to have the necessary skills for a, a national campaign really where we're all in it together literally yeah i, th- I think that's a good that's a good point and and, and we've we've talked about heat pumps and we've talked about retrofit but but what about hydrogen is, is hydrogen a viable option we've heard quite a lot of hype in the last few months about hydrogen. yeah i think a lot of the hype's coming from um the gas distribution industry who are mm. behaving a little bit like dinosaurs and trying to preserve a, a, a you know a, a environmentally unviable industry in the face of change um hydrogen's clearly got a place and what hydrogen's good at is fueling industrial processes big vehicles ships by big vehicles i mean maybe buses but certainly big trucks where batteries don't work very well um if you look at hydrogen for heating homes to me it doesn't make any kind of sense um if you're going to first of all you'd have to make your hydrogen from zero carbon electricity by electrolyzing water all the other ways of making hydrogen create lots of carbon dioxide emissions so they're pointless really if you make your if you've got lots of zero carbon electricity from your offshore wind say and you use it to make hydrogen you then create hydrogen put it in the gas network and it gets to the house and you use it in a boiler at 90 percent efficiency and you've also lost a bit of efficiency along the way in the process of electrolyzing the water to make the hydrogen in the first place so overall you get about 62 percent efficiency in terms of what the, the heat you get out at the end uh, from the heat pump compared with the um 
what you put in in the terms yeah. of the electricity at the beginning. But why would you do that? Yeah. Surely yeah. what you do is you send that zero carbon electricity straight to the house and yeah. use it to drive a heat pump at 250% efficiency. Yeah. Uh, and it, it means that you get a much more efficient system overall. Yeah. Um, so I, I can't see hydrogen as a domestic space heating fuel. It just doesn't seem to yeah. me to make any sense in terms of simple physics. But I wouldn't deny that hydrogen has a role to play in lots of other places. And I think probably the amount of hydrogen we can afford to make, because mm. it's expensive stuff, needs to be reserved for those uses I mentioned earlier, the big vehicles and the ships and things, and maybe even planes, yeah. uh, things where um, there aren't any other sensible options or we, then it's, it's, you know, yeah. the other options are too heavy. Things, things where we can, Michael, Michael Liebreich, who's, who's got a really interesting uh, pod, um, he, he's got a two-parter on hydrogen. He's, he's, he's excellent. And, and I think he's, he's, he's just saying what, what you're, what you're there, there. Most things can be electrified. In fact, he's got a really interesting chart. It almost replicates like an EPC chart, like A to F. And, and what he's talking about is exactly what, what you were about, where you where the electrification of things like ships and, and and buses and trucks and so on, chemical engineering, processing, smelting, all that kind of stuff, you'll need hydrogen, you'll, you'll need it sparingly. And I think at the bottom of that chart is is, is hydrogen boilers. You know, he says yeah. it's, it's just it's just not viable in the, in, in, in the current way. Well, absolutely. I mean, it's 62% overall efficiency for hydrogen compared with 250% for electric heat pumps. It's a no-brainer, really. Why would yeah. you go there? Yeah, exactly. And in the in the retrofit challenge that, that, that we have, and 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 if if we accept that we have to decarbonize, we have to reduce demand. Um, do you see a role for um, local authorities in being the vanguard because of some of the, the the volumes they have? Do you see the possibility for local authorities to try and shape the market? Yes, I do to some degree. I've recently been involved with the local authority delivery scheme too. Lads, too, as it's called. I don't. I don't think it goes to Scotland. It's mostly in England. But um, I think we ought to be trusting local authorities to understand the homes and the households and the people in their areas and work with them to generate demand, to help explain things, and to put them in touch with the right people and, and all that kind of thing. So the facilitation by local authorities, I think, is is you know probably essential. I, I can't see central government programs sort of landing on our heads from on high, uh, actually cutting it. I think people will need uh, much more hand-holding locally. I've been recently visiting a lot and listening to the Carbon Co-op people in Manchester who run the People Powered Retrofit program, and they've been saying it takes them three, four, sometimes six months working with a household or with a street community to persuade them to have the confidence to go for retrofit. Oh. And that's that's all the building the confidence, building the knowledge, yeah. and so on those people need. We can't afford to spend six months persuading, persuading every household to do this. Clearly, we'll pick up momentum. But I think there's a very big potential role for local authorities in facilitating it Mm. and uh, helping to organise it and helping to marshal both the supply side and the demand and yeah. bring them together. And interesting. And, and just before we come on to talk about PASS and, and PASS 2035 in terms of where it came from, so if, if we accept that we, the retrofit challenge and that we have to insulate and, 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 and look at fabric first as an approach, are, are there, I suppose, are there risk with a market-led approach? But but are building standards and, and, and BBAs, are they not sufficient in terms of their detailing to, to specify the works that's required? I suppose this is a, a pre-question as to why did PASS come about, but isn't isn't the yeah. processes in place, aren't they good enough? Well, 
I mean, I think the point to make here is that um, building standards uh, in Scotland, building regulations in England and Wales are minimum standards. Mm. And um, basically, the the whole industry across the building industry has got used to the idea of only building anything or only doing any work to the minimum requirements of the building regs. And there are plenty of places where you can show that that's really not a, a robust solution, particularly with regard to things like moisture risks. Mm. Uh, and when it comes to retrofit, we have lots of new risks that we didn't know about before, and building standards have really not caught up with mm. understanding those risks. Um, so I would say that, that in many ways that's why we have better standards now, because those standards are good practice or best practice standards, and we need to be we need to change the culture actually, and understand that what the industry needs to do is to build better than the minimum standards required by the building regs. Yeah. And then on BBAs, um, I think the problem with the BBA certificate is that if you look at just about every retrofit disaster that's occurred in the last 10 years, some in Scotland and many in England and Wales, every single one had a BBA certificate for the measures installed. Yeah, uh, it's, it's only as good as whether people uh, read it and apply it and yeah. so on. And if instead they just say, yeah, BBA certificate, got that tick yeah. and then they build to the minimum standard that they're used to building to it doesn't stop disasters happening yeah so uh, very expensive yeah so um why would you want to push the industry in that direction i think it's better to do what we've done and write some new standards yeah. um and take it from there so that's that's really interesting and, and i suppose that brings us on to well what why did you know what has passed and and and, and why did past 2035 come about because i'm right in saying peter that you were uh, you worked on past twenty thirty five. You were um... yes. I was the I was a member of the implementation board of the Each Home Counts review in twenty fifteen twenty sixteen, and uh, the, it was the Each Home Counts review which led to the development. Or one of the many recommendations of the review was to develop a suite or a, um, a framework of technical standards for retrofit in order to overcome many of the problems that we'd had. And so that was the, the kind of driver of it, really. But behind each home counts was the fact that lots of retrofit projects were going horribly wrong. Yeah. Um, we were working with an industry, the energy efficiency industry, which to a large extent doesn't care about the customer. It was being funded by energy companies and government. The customer just happened to be in the house getting in the way. Mm. Um, didn't understand risks. Mm. Uh, didn't understand health risks in particular to occupants. Um, didn't understand how to manage risks and particularly didn't understand moisture risks. Mm. And so we had a situation where things were going badly wrong. And actually government was saying, which was getting lots of complaints, and ministers were having to write groveling letters back to householders whose homes had been damaged. And you know, when you think about people's homes, whether or not they own or rent, the home, these are people's homes. Yeah. And and it's their health and their lives. And so having programs that damaged people's homes and possibly or potentially, or in many cases, their health was simply not acceptable. And government wasn't prepared to start putting money into supporting retrofit when the outcomes were so poor. Yeah. So it was poor outcomes that drove the Each Home Counts Review. And it was the Each Home Counts Review that, amongst many recommendations, I think there were 26, recommended uh, through uh, three recommendations that a framework of technical standards for retrofit be developed and uh, and imposed by government, at least on the publicly funded mm -hmm. sectors of retrofit. And so that's what we did. Mm -hmm. uh, and Pass 2035 is all about protecting the customer. Yeah, uh, You get lots of complaints about it from 
uh, particularly from the delivery organizations who have to jump through new hoops and do things in a different way. But in the end, it's all about protecting householders and their investments and their health. So that's interesting because go, go back to the earlier question about are, are building standards sufficient? And I think I think you're alluding to some of the, the bigger uh, problems that came out of, I think there was a, a, an estate in Wales, I think there was one in Preston where yep. I think the BRE were involved where you know, significant significant um, issues had occurred uh, at, at an estate uh, level through through retrofit measures. And, and that's, first of all, that's the need for past yes. 2035. And, sure. Well, Preston is often cited, actually, um, as uh, as as the one of the motivating factors. And in fact, we yeah. when we started the HM Enhancer, we had the insulation industry in a room uh, at base, and we were talking to them about the need for changing the way where things were done and improved quality. And, and they weren't buying it. But in the afternoon, the base people wheeled in mm-hmm. a lady from Preston, where there's a, a, that estate that you mentioned, which is, yeah. is in Fishwick, where nearly 300 houses were essentially made almost uninhabitable and certainly unsaleable. There were owner-occupied houses mm. by very poorly installed external wall insulation that was not designed. It was just thrown mm. up by installers under the CESS program, which was the precursor of ECO. And um, once we'd showed them this presentation about Preston and said, and this is also happening in Wales, mm. north and south, and there are plenty of other places, they all were looking at their feet and beginning to acknowledge that there is a problem. We're still trying to win over that industry, but there are a significant number of people who've come around and seen that the way it was working before is not going to be good enough. It's it's interesting, Peter, because uh, we had a conversation with um, uh, with Jeff just last week, and and, and I, as, as building as building commissioners, as designers of buildings, far too often we look at things from a technical perspective and the performance of, or, or, or an abstract from the human element. And I guess what you're saying here is really quite interesting, quite refreshing, that past 2035 is is looking at holistically the performance of the home, but with, with the tenant, with the owner, with the resident in mind. Yes, absolutely. And I heard, I was in a meeting this morning where I heard Colin King say exactly the same thing. That yeah. The point of Pass 2035 is to protect the householder. Mm-hmm. And the, and if they're an owner-occupier, it's the biggest investment in their life, very yeah. often. Yeah. Um, and, you know, for a government industry to um, damage, gov- a government-funded or promoted industry to damage it is outrageous, really. Yeah. And the, there's a lady called Annika Kelly who works for Carbon Co-op and on the po- People Powered Retrofit Program. And she's developed this term, the client, the resident client, Mm. she's saying that when you're doing retrofit it may not be that the occupants are the clients it may be the landlord might be the energy company you know somebody different is paying for the work but actually you have to pay attention to the needs and risks associated with the resident client it's their home it's their health and when it goes wrong it usually costs five times as much and takes five times as long to put it right as it would have done to do it right in the first place so we really need to get a you know, an occupant focus to our retrofit programs and get yeah. them on our side and working with us to achieve the outcomes we want. And I suppose in some way, again, the conversation we had last week with Scott Foster at the UN was was looking at where, so we spend in the UK, we spend a significant time in our houses and, and um, the summer we've had here in Scotland, uh, Peter, <laughs> has been has been really nice, but but we're coming into autumn and winter and, and, the, and especially now with, with COVID, you know, lots of his homework. You know, the time that we spend in, in our homes 
is significant. But what Scott was saying was quite interesting is turning around uh, the challenges around retrofit as, and, and looking at the opportunities to provide better conditions, to provide uh, warmer, uh, better ventilated, um, you know, healthier homes, which in turn provide healthier communities. I quite like that that mm. that concept. Um, was, well, I think it's, uh, it's. I think the pandemic has really exposed yeah. that the inadequacy of our housing stock. Yeah, and it's not just that it's not warm enough and not well enough ventilated. Quite a lot of it's in the wrong place. Yeah. Lots of people I've been reading about don't want to go back to spending two hours on the motorway or two hours on the train every day going backwards and forwards because the place where they live is separate from the place where they're supposed to work. Yeah. And if we're going to do more working from home, which would be yeah. more working from home would probably be the biggest sustainability contribution we could possibly make. Getting rid of that tidal movement of people yeah. from homes to workplaces and back every single day of the week. Yeah. Um, if we could do that, but the homes aren't really fit for it. They don't have you know, built-in home offices. They don't have enough ventilation. They don't have enough privacy, especially if there are kids trying to do their homework as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we need probably to take the opportunity when doing the low-carbon retrofit to think about you know, how we make the homes better as well. And it's quite an interesting idea because several architects who do retrofit have said to me, when you do retrofit, why would you leave the house the way it is and and just, you know, clothe it in insulation and change the boiler for a heat pump. Surely you would change the layout, yeah. maybe build a bit of an extension and make sure that the spaces were modern spaces and they had more light and more ventilation and, and basically refurbish the house in a, in a more a broader way. And I think the argument for that is almost unassailable. We need yeah. to make our homes more usable, more yeah. useful, as well as more efficient. And I, th- I think when you put that in, in, in a climate change context about the, the carbon that's emitted from building homes, um, you know that 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 probably accelerates that argument for the retrofit um, mm-hmm. of an existing build. So so just just get back to 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 Paz twenty thirty five. So so really the driver here is the occupant, is the tenant, is the resident, uh, and and that's quite progressive. Um, what what are the obligations and and they're using by who has to use it? Why do they have to use it? What what are the rules? How does it work in practice? Okay, well, like, like all standards from BSI, which are UK-wide standards, it's voluntary. Uh, anybody can adopt it and say, I wish my work to comply with past 2035. Um, but mostly, of course, in retrofit, it would be uh, government-funded programmes, it would be house uh, landlords, uh, local authorities, housing associations, those kind of organisations who would be expected to say, we expect all the work in our area to be, or funded in this way, to be PAS 2035 compliant. And PAS 2035 is essentially a process. Um, It's a way of, if you adopt the process in PAS 2035, or if a local authority or a housing association says, the work in our program must comply with PAS 2035, then it imposes a process which is designed to minimize the risks and manage them, and make sure that the outcomes are as intended without unintended consequences. Mm. And the way it, so anybody can adopt it, even an individual householder could say, I want my house retrofitted, but I want it compliant with PAS 2035. That would be fine. Um, It is a little bit more expensive if you do it one-off like that. Um, Regulation is essentially um, because there's a person in the PAS 2035 process called a retrofit coordinator, whose job is to ensure that everything complies with the process correctly and to claim compliance at the end of the job. 
Now, in the case of some organizations, that means there's a body that you can claim compliance for. So UK government-funded programs are usually made to comply via, via an organization called Trustmark, uh, which is a, a government-endorsed standards body. And what would happen then is the rhetoric coordinator would submit the evidence that the work completed complied with past 2035 to Trustmark. You have a data warehouse to which you upload things. But there's nothing to stop a local authority or a housing association or the Scottish government um, from saying we require our work to comply with past 2035. And instead of submitting the evidence to Trustmark, you, it could be submitted direct to the, mm -hmm. the organisation requiring compliance. That would be fine. It would still be the retrofit coordinator's job to collate that evidence and to supply it uh, and to basically to hold his hand up or her hand up and say, this work, um, I'm confirming that this work complies with the process that's been laid down. And, and one of the things about PAS 2035 is that it's a process standard. It's overarching and so on. But it refers to loads of other standards. And, and that's because in each home counts, the recommendation was to build a retrofit standards framework. And the framework is not only PAS 2035, but also all the other standards to which PAS 2035 refers and comply and requires compliance with, like PAS 2030, the installation standard, BS 5250, the condensation standard, BS 7913 for historic buildings, and so on. Mm -hmm. And lots of non-BSI standards, like the insulation industry standards, and the MCS standards for renewables, and so on. And so the idea of the framework is that whenever anyone be it Trustmark or government or a local authority or a devolved government, requires compliance with PAS 2035. PAS 2035 requires compliance with all those other standards. And so all the current best practice standards get brought to bear. Uh, so it's a way of, it's a mechanism for ensuring that everything is done in accordance with current best practice as far as possible. So it's and we will be enhancing it as we go along. Right. We're writing new standards all the time. Yeah. Uh, to cover things like performance evaluation, uh, ventilation air tightness, yeah. um, assessment, and so on, which will be added to the framework so that we're it's a dynamic, yeah. moving and improving thing rather than a, a fixed thing. So I, th I think in a, you, you, you may agree that a lot of the confusion in past 2035 is around the perception that it is a standard, and I think I think that's what you're saying. It's not a it's not a standard. That's a process, and that's one of the key, the key things. Yes. It, it's yeah. how how the process, and, and I think you and I have had this conversation before, I think Russell Smith summed it up really well. Uh, Russell Smith um, um, talks about the guardian of, is it the guardian of the truth or the guardian of quality? Yeah, custodian, yes. Russell custodian. says that the, re the rhetoric coordinator is the custodian of the yeah. truth. Yeah. Because the rhetoric coordinator is not super expert in every single aspect of rhetoric, but knows enough about every aspect of rhetoric to know what good looks like yeah. and has the authority to say that's not good enough. Yeah. across the project and so yes the rhetoric coordinator is the custodian of the truth and we train them to to know enough about it to be able to ensure that work is done properly mm -hmm. um it, it is it is a good um it's a good description that yeah. of of what's going on but that's not to say that it's I mean, although past 2035 is a process standard it expects the project team to have performance standards embedded in what they do so whether mm -hmm. that be benefit or building standards or uh, energy of sprung or whatever it might be, or even the local authorities' own emissions yeah. and efficiency standards, um, those are also quite complementary to the past 2035 process. Yeah. And we would normally expect the, um, the 
retrofit project team to set standards or the funding body to set standards about what the energy performance or the carbon performance of the buildings was expected to be. What's 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 the outcome? Yeah. yeah. But Pathway 35 also covers you know, health and well-being, yeah. protecting the architectural and historic heritage, um, all sorts of things like that, resilience against climate change, not just energy performance, but lots of other um, yeah. Which, potential which, outcomes. Which I think is refreshing because I think, again, you know, being probably critical of my profession in our industry is we have to start to consider things in a more holistic way. We have to start to look at houses as as, as places where people can lead healthy lives rather than how do we stick this on and comply um, with 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 it, with certain standards? So that, that's really interesting. That really frames the the, the why passes is past twenty thirty five is kind of about the reasons for it. So so practically in terms of the landlords, if there's people listening here who who work in a a social landlord setting, what, what do they have to put in place if they're looking at retrofit schemes? What what's the kind of things that they will have to uh, start to think about now? Well, I think the, the key thing is to adopt Pass 2035 as their standard, that mm-hmm. they expect work that they fund or promote to comply with. They probably need a retrofit coordinator or a small team of retrofit coordinators, depending on the size of their program. And I would very strongly argue that that retrofit coordination team needs to be on the client side yeah. of any program and not, not part of some kind of design and build model, which will cause a conflict of interest because the role of the past rhetoric coordinator or one of them is to protect the client's interest and the public interest. Mm-hmm. So in any kind of delivery organization, there's a conflict of interest immediately. Whereas if it's a local authority or a housing association, then the rhetoric coordinator should be on the client side of the contract divide and doing exactly that, protecting interests. Yeah. I think the second thing to say is that it's not cheap. Mm-hmm. Um, there are, doing things properly costs more and takes a bit longer than doing things in a shoddy way. And we've got into a culture of doing things in a shoddy way. We've got used to uh, prices for doing retrofit work, which in my view are about 30% or more too low to do it properly. I remember hearing Colin King saying that the eco program pays about two thirds of what it would cost to do the job well. Mm -hmm. And, And has always done that because there's been an incentive to drive you know, a perverse incentive to drive the costs down because the energy companies in meeting their obligations just want to score a SAP point or whatever it might be for the minimum cost. Yeah. So I think an organization that adopts past 2035 has to understand it will get less retrofit for its money or it needs to put a bit more money in to get the number of retrofits it wants. But it will at least get good retrofit and won't have to go around again. And all yeah. the experience we've had of getting things wrong and having to go around again, like at Preston, yeah, uh, and in Wales, is it costs five times as much to put it right when we get when we allow it to go wrong. So, um, but we we you know we need to get past finance directors and procurement directors and people like that yeah. who are going to say, well, that's expensive. Why should we do it that way when we can do it the cheap way? We've always done it, but, and you know, yeah. you can't really. No, I I, I think it's, it's such a relevant point. I think I think the the discussion you and I have had this on a number of occasions is that. We, I come from a, 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 a small family building business um, years and years ago, and, the, and the, the term that we used to use was you buy it cheap, you buy it twice, meaning that, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. And I think you, you hit the nail on the head there about some of the measures that have been done, and they were almost trying to be shoehorned into the grant funding that was available rather than mm. look at how that grant funding could supplement a higher quality job. 
And yes. I think I think that I think we need to get our collective mindset as commissioners or as as, as deliverer delivering work that things will cost more money. Now this is the thing, things will cost more money now, but not in the but but in the long term. Will, yeah. Yes. And, and I, I think, think there's a there's a very good point buried in there, Duncan, that uh, an awful lot of the programs we've had across the UK have been predetermining what should be done. Hmm. Here's a load of money to stick external yeah. wall installation on homes. Here's a load of money to put heat pumps in or whatever it might be. And actually, past 2035 says that's the wrong process. Yeah. You assess the dwelling and you look at the, the needs of the household and the needs of the dwelling and what it needs to have before it gets to 2050. And then you decide on the package of measures and the priorities for them uh, as part of the improvement option evaluation in the medium term plan. And quite a lot of uh, programs have come with perverse incentives to, to yeah. get the credits for putting things in that are not really right, not the right yeah. thing to do. So we have to sort of back off from that kind of approach as well. Yeah, it's such a good point where you have to stand back and objectively look at what what will improve the dwelling. And I think, again, back to the past 2035 approach is what will improve that without, uh, without causing um, unintended consequences down the line at a later stage. Um, sure and, and you know to have a program delivered by driven by improving sat points or yeah. improving epc bands yeah. is not the point really it's it's no. actually misguided yeah very, what we should be doing very very much so another thing that colin king said which i think is very good is that the quality of the assessment you do affects the quality of the retrofit you get out at the end you yeah. do a proper assessment of the dwelling and you you start to understand the context the condition the energy performance the occupancy the ventilation and the significance you end up with a good project which will you know tick all the boxes rather than one that just says oh we can get eight sat points if we install one of these yeah uh, so it's very important, I think, to assess well. I've been arguing for a, a national program that splits the assessment, improvement, option, evaluation and medium term plan process, which is the front end of PAS 2035, from the installation process, mm. which is the design at the back end of PAS 2035 and the installation under PAS 2030, mm. in order that we can, we can you know, kind of get people on board, get them signed up, assess their dwellings, understand what they need and create a pipeline of work for the industry in the future. Um, government seems remarkably reluctant to split things in the way that I think would be the most appropriate way to do it. And I have noticed that the Construction Leadership Council's um, national retrofit plan proposal, which has been out for consultation, um, Really, rather championed by the Federation of Master Builders and by Russell mm. Smith at Retrofit Works, actually does exactly that. It suggests that we have a program of assessment of the housing stocks, and then we have a program of delivery, and that that would really help the industry to build the right capacity and know where know yeah. where the capacity is required and so on. That's, but we need to develop an appetite for that amongst yeah. politicians. That's really interesting. I'll, I'll have a have a look at that. Um, Peter, it's been it's been lovely to have you on. I'm conscious of the time we've we've used up nearly an hour of your time. Um, the, the 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 question I think you've already answered that I, I, I was going to ask was what's the future of PAS? Well, a bit like SAP, where we have continual uh, um, amendments, upgrades of it. How 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 does that how will that play out? Well, we're in the we're in the middle of an amendment, a minor amendment at the mm. moment, um, and that will be published at the end of 2021, uh, and it's been quite painful. There are many vested interests. BSI operates a very good internationally agreed process for developing and improving standards. It's set out by ISO and CEN, and it involves um, industry representative steering groups reaching consensus about 
what should be in the standard and what should be changed. So it's quite painful because uh, everything has to be argued through almost line by line. But we're currently planning um, a standing steering group for past 2035. In other words, it will be there all the time and considering uh, continuous flow of potential uh, improvements or amendments or corrections. And we're currently proposing annual updates mm. out of that process. So every year, whatever's been discussed by the steering group and agreed will get put into an annual edition. So we, sh we may have a past 2035, 2022, and a past 2035, yeah. 2023, and so on. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it, this is a new industry. Yeah. Uh, we don't know everything about it. We don't understand all the risks. We're trying to use new materials, new products, yeah. new systems, new processes, and so we're learning. Yes. And we've been learning for the last 10 years, but there's still a long way to go. So I think the standard has to learn as well. Yeah. Um, it, I mean, it's a bit difficult to apply a, a slightly... Um, arthritic process from <laughs> the ISO to a dynamic environment, yeah. but I think we can we can make it work. It's a good point. It's a fact, as, as a dynamic environment, things are changing, and, and I think yeah. that's the nature and uh, nature of of of, of the beast. Um, just before, just one thing before we go, and there's a lot of stuff going on, and I, th I think um, uh, people like us have been trying to highlight the importance in the built environment and really relation to climate change and our our, our climate change targets. Are you are you coming up to Glasgow and uh, for COP twenty six? Have you any plans to come and see some of the stuff that's going on? With, I think the Green Buildings Council. Sure. Well, I'm. I mean, I'd like to be there. We've we've talked about coming up to participate in the in the UN session that you mentioned yeah. earlier. And yeah. I'm really keen to do that. Um, I have a feeling that Glasgow might be the place to be during <laughs> yeah. November. So I'm. Yeah. It's definitely. Well, we haven't confirmed the date yet, have we? But it's definitely in my diary. Yeah. And um, I, I'm, I'm very keen to be there. I have a friend who, uh, an old friend and colleague who was at the Rio conference oh, wow. in I think 1981. And it changed his life. You know, he was wow. just there on the fringes and talking to people and learning and listening. But he said this was great. You know, it, yeah. it completely changed his motivation. So I think the more people who can be part of that process and around the fringes and uh, participating in the discussions, absolutely the better. Yeah. So um, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm looking forward to a few days in Glasgow, well, and let's see what the outcome is. I mean, I have a suspicion it might be quite disappointing because mm. I don't think the UK government has really understood the nature of the challenge. Um, but maybe we can impress it upon them during those few days. Yeah. Who knows? And I, th I think if we can have a discussion amongst um, building professionals about some of the work that's going on out there, and, the, and, and we mentioned at the start of the podcast, one of the reasons for, 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 for putting this together was to try and disseminate information, good practice, best practice, kind of shine a light on some of the, the things that are going on out there in a way that other people can pick up on. And I think that's something that can happen at some of the days in, in co-op, especially around the built environment days, where we can show um, what's achievable and try and try and and try and build on that narrative of something you know around positivity rather than yes. you know business as usual. Peter, well, I think positivity rather than uh, oh, this is all too expensive and complicated. Yes. Yeah, ex exactly. It's sort of we can do this, guys. Let's get on with yeah. it. I think is the, is the attitude. I think totally, and 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 without naming any naming and shaming any any of the red tops, I think we have that red top mentality of this is just too complex. It's too expensive. It's too disruptive. And I think we have to start to build a narrative around something that's more progressive than that. Peter, yeah. it's been a pleasure having you on. Thank you so much for your time, and hope to uh -huh. maybe buy you a beer, a sustainable beer, uh, <laughs> at, at COP twenty six. In fact, yeah. just before we go. We had a conversation, uh, I think it may have been a year ago or so, about peanut butter, and I found 
a sustainable peanut butter that I meant to share with you. I was going to send you. Yeah. I found <laughs> I've, I've found a really good. Uh, I won't name the brand on here just now, but a, a, a peanut butter that doesn't use palm oil. And I thought I need to tell Peter about that. That's you that, do. Yes, I'd like to know about that. that my kids my... consume vast quantities of peanut butter, yeah. and so the healthier the better, as far as yeah. I can see. Yeah. So there so it's go. been great, actually. Thank you for inviting me to oh, do this. Thank you. It's it's good to you know get a have a vehicle to. Um, yeah. express a few opinions about things and explain a few things um you know, it's been great great no, i've really enjoyed it absolute pleasure and what we'll do is we'll um listen we'll get you back on jeff couldn't make it this afternoon but be lovely to get you back on as and when any updates come on and uh, over the coming coming months great thank you so much peter really appreciate it you're very welcome great thanks duncan thanks peter take care now yeah bye cheers bye